most mistakes in life uh, we can recover from. In fact, many mistakes that feel serious in the moment, we often laugh about years later. I had a mistake like that uh, when I preached this sermon for the very first time. Uh, So I was at this church in Michigan and they had asked me to preach and so I, had, I was putting time into that, trying to prepare for the message. And, and the days leading up to the message, uh, I woke up really early one morning and I went into the church to work on this message. And it turns out I went in too early. Because when I walked in, I set off the entire alarm system in this giant church. <laughs> and there was nobody else there. It was dark out. And so I started reaching out to staff. Nobody answered. And so I did what any sensible person would do in that situation. I fled the scene. I walked out. I walked out as fast as I could. I left the situation totally unresolved. And, you know, I I went on a run that morning and I was running and I was thinking, I wonder if anybody ever turned that alarm off. Maybe it's still just going off. I, I don't know. Well, it turns out I think like the police showed up and they turned the alarm off. And then there was this really, really funny footage Uh, on the video feed at the church. It was like, I like walked in and and I walked back out, you know? (laughs) And so that would be an example of a silly mistake, a mistake I could recover from. But not all mistakes are like that. There are mistakes that are more serious, that have eternal consequences if we don't correct them. And that's the take-home message this morning. Some mistakes have eternal consequences consequences. Some mistakes have eternal consequences. Now, when I talk about these mistakes, we're talking about sin, okay? These, these are sins, right? But the reason I use the word mistake is because these sins are rooted in, in these men that we're going to look at being seriously mistaken. You see, the world has a way of forming us into its mold, squeezing us into its mold and making us think how the world thinks, And these mistakes are rooted in that. And we want to avoid them because God calls these mistakes foolish. And you don't want to be called a fool by God. That's not what you want. And so we're going to walk through four mistakes this morning. And here is mistake number one. I'm a fool when I mistake possession for purpose. I'm a fool when I mistake possession for purpose. Look at verses 13 through 15. So someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so the key word here is covetousness. And what that points out about this is it's not just about money. Okay, that word covetous, it means to get more. That's what, literally what it means. And Jesus is targeting this way of thinking, this attitude, uh, where we make our all-consuming purpose getting more and more and more. That could be money, that could be possessions, that could be experiences. And Jesus is saying that uh, one's life does not consist in that way of thinking. And we have to keep in mind the, the context of this chapter. Uh, in, in Luke 12, 1, it says that so many people were following Jesus at this point that, that they were trampling one another. So many thousands that they were 
trampling one another. And so picture a rock concert, a sporting event where there's tens of thousands of people all kind of caving in on one person. And that was the scene here. And many people had come to Jesus for different reasons. Okay, I I would categorize the people in the crowds with two categories. Transactional followers and true followers. Transactional followers were those in the crowds who were there to get something from Jesus. They had their own selfish agenda for Jesus. And we know throughout the Gospels they talk a lot about this. Uh, There were those who were there because Jesus was a miracle worker. Right? He was the modern day entertainment, right? They wanted to see a sign from him, but they didn't want much more from him. There were also those who were there because Jesus was a healer. Okay? They wanted to have their physical infirmities heal, healed, but they, that's all they wanted from him. Okay? Then there were those who were in the crowd because they wanted to force Jesus to be a political or military king, right? And they wanted him to overthrow Rome and re- reinstitute national Israel. But Jesus is a king. However, his kingdom is not of this world, right? And so there were other purposes people had in the crowd. And from the midst of these transactional followers comes this man. And this man comes up to Jesus and he certainly had an agenda for meeting with Jesus. He wanted to get something from Jesus. So rather than asking about his eternal inheritance... He asks about his earthly inheritance. He says, uh, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He was a transactional follower. But Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to teach his true followers, his genuine followers, which is what we want to be at Prairie Bible Church. It's a good question to ask yourself are you a transactional follower or a true follower? I remember a time in my life where I was definitely a transactional follower. I I grew up playing basketball. My my life was all about basketball growing up. And I had this relationship with Jesus where it was like, it's like we had a deal, or or I thought, you know. Jesus, you know, if I I score 20 points in this basketball game, I'm really going to obey you, you know. Jesus, if you don't let me get hurt, I'm going to obey you with all my heart. And then when those things wouldn't happen, I wouldn't be so motivated to obey him, right? Because I had a transactional relationship. And so a really good way to think about this, if you're thinking, am I true or transactional with Jesus, is what do you do when things don't go your way? What do you do when God changes your plan? Are you faithful then? Because if you're not, you might be a transactional follower. Okay, so here's another question we need to answer. What do you do if you are rich? I had a teacher in seminary. He would say to me that in America, he'd say, I have granola in my pantry. I have two cartons of eggs in my fridge. I'm rich, right? So we are all rich. But relatively speaking, in America, I mean, some people are more rich than other people. And so what do you do if you are rich? Well, it's not a sin in and of itself to be rich. In fact, the issue is not so much do you have money. It is does money have you. Do you have possessions or do your possessions have you? Remember the rich young ruler? That was his problem. His his possessions had him. But there is a way to follow Jesus and be rich, right? There were rich followers of Jesus. Remember Joseph of Arimathea who helped bury the body of Jesus? Zacchaeus, when he came to Christ, he was rich. But what do you do if you're rich? 
Well, I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that question because he gave a really good answer to that in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. He said, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, whether it's money or possessions, or experiences, or relationships, or those things you want so bad. It's not bad to want some of those things. But are you subordinating that to your relationship with Jesus? Is it coming in second place, not first place? That's the question. Are your possessions your purpose, or is your purpose following Jesus? We want to be a church that our purpose is following Jesus. I'm a fool when I mistake possessions for purpose. Here's mistake number two. I'm a fool when I mistake myself for God. Look at verses 16 and 17 as Jesus begins to teach this parable. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, why did Jesus choose farming as the person's profession? I mean, this one should be applicable in Iowa, right? Why did Jesus choose farming? Well, farming is uniquely dependent on God, isn't it? It says this man's land produced plentifully. Well, how does land produce plentifully? The rain, right? Weather. And who creates the rain? God. And, and who causes crops to grow when the rain falls? God. You see, God was responsible for this man's abundant crop, right? His barns had become full, and that was because of, of God's blessing on him. Uh, and, and just like this man, you know, when God blesses us, we have a choice about what we're going to do next. So let's see what this man did next. And it's kind of disappointing what he did next. Listen to my emphasis as I read verses 17 and 18 again. I want you to notice something. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. I count five eyes, four mys. This man is self-absorbed. He's caved in on himself. He thought he was the source of the good crop when it was God who gave him the abundance. You know, James 1.17, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above. So that could be money, possessions, right? Your house, your finances, but it's also your gifts, your talents, your abilities, those things that you can do easily that other people can't do easily. What the Bible teaches us is that we are not owners of those things. We are managers, stewards of those things. And that those gifts, first and foremost, come from God. And so this man's mistake was he took credit for what God 
had given him. He thought he was the owner. And we don't want to make that mistake. I mentioned uh, basketball earlier. Uh, One thing I found when I was playing basketball is it was easy for me to take credit when I had a good game, but then when things didn't go well, it was easy for me to blame God. We have a tendency when things go well to take credit and when they don't go well to blame God. And this passage is teaching us don't do that. You see, every good and perfect gift we have comes from God and then when things get hard, we ought to to pray and be patient in affliction. And so what should this man have done? Well, I would put it this way. He should have talked to God first. Listen, when God fills your barns, talk to God first. Thank him. Ask him what, what he would have you do. Have open hands. And God has given us things to enjoy. He's not just going to take it all from you, okay? But God wants us to have open hands toward him and to thank him first when he fills our barns. I'm a fool when I mistake myself for God. Here is foolish mistake number three. I'm a fool when I mistake material security for spiritual security. So he continues to talk to himself in Luke 12, 19, and now it gets kind of weird. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Why is he talking to his soul? Can these things, these riches he have, uh, do anything to secure his soul? No. They can secure his body to a certain extent, But these things cannot secure his soul. Only God can secure our souls. And and it might seem silly to mistake our soul for our body, uh, but this is kind of like today when we uh, mistake material security for spiritual security. You know, we have a tendency as human beings to, uh, when the bank account is full, when everything's put in order, to think our soul's secure. When really, that's just our body is secure. Now, you can have material security and spiritual security. That's not a bad thing. But we don't want to make the mistake of thinking one is the other because they're not the same thing. In fact, there was a church in Revelation, one of the seven churches that Jesus spoke to had this exact problem. Uh, They were called the church in Laodicea. And Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy commercial city, okay? And that means that the people in the church there were very, very wealthy, But that had become a problem for them. And Jesus confronted the church in Laodicea with these words in Revelation 3, 17 through 19. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' words, not mine. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You see, like the Laodiceans, many of us live in abundance, and we live in a time of abundance, and we need to be on guard against a shallow Christianity. The idea that Christianity is just one little piecemeal part of our lives, one little compartment in our lives. 
That's a very American way of thinking, but that's not a gospel way of thinking. To follow Jesus is to follow him with all your heart. That's why the Bible says you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You know, D.A. Carson, uh, he's a theologian. He, he summed up this way of thinking with this quote that will probably convict you. It convicted me first. Uh, this is what D.A. Carson said. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Man, that one hurts, doesn't it? Somebody in first service said it should say $100 of gospel, please, because of inflation, but I think $3 worth of gospel, please, still works. You know, we have a tendency to treat our faith this way, don't we? Like we can kind of go with the world's way of thinking, go with the pattern of the world when we want, and then, you know, some, sometimes come back and be sacrificial, and, and that's just not biblical, gospel-centered Christianity. We shouldn't mistake our material security for our spiritual security. I'm a fool when I mistake material security for spiritual security. And here is the final mistake uh, we don't want to make. I'm a fool when I mistake now for eternity. I'm a fool when I mistake now for eternity. So now God is going to turn to the man and answer him with pretty strong words. Uh, But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, there's this story, uh, this story about three devils, okay, three demons. And Satan had gathered his three smartest demons. And, and, And their task was to bring forward a report about how to deceive mankind. And so the first demon, you know, he worked really hard on his report and he came forward to Satan and he said, I've got it. Here's how we will deceive people. We will teach them that there is no heaven. And Satan thought to himself and he said, I don't think that's going to work. People have eternity stored up in their hearts. We're not doing that. The next demon came forward and he said, I've got it. We will convince people that there's no hell. And Satan thought to himself and he said, Well, some people might be foolish enough to believe that. But if people believe there's a heaven, they typically believe there's a hell, that's not going to work. And then the third demon, the smartest of the bunch, came forward and he said, I've got it. We will teach people that there's no hurry. And Satan said, that's it. We will teach people that there's no hurry. You know, how many people today live like there's no hurry to prepare for eternity. Wasn't that the mistake of this man? That he had all this abundance and he was stressed running to and fro, the modern day equivalent of scrolling through his phone, right, trying to figure out how to deal with all these, these things about now and he was not concerned about eternity. 
And the problem here is that we don't look at things the way that God does. You see, our God is sovereign. And what that means is that we can only see our past and present. God can see our past, present, and future at the exact same time. That's pretty wild, isn't it? So as I'm preaching this sermon, God can see right now the pastor who will be preaching at my funeral. God can see the morgue that your body will be placed in when you die. And so God has a perspective that we usually don't live with. But what if we lived with that perspective? There was a man in the Old Testament named Moses who lived with that perspective. Uh, In fact, Moses wrote one psalm, Psalm 90. It's one of my favorite psalms. And in that psalm, uh, Moses said, So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Do you want a heart of wisdom? Number your days. Realize that death is the destination of us all. And that will help you live with greater perspective. And that will help you live not just for now, but for eternity. You know, Jesus describes the man in the parable as someone who is not rich toward God. And that phrase occurs only one time in the entire Bible, rich toward God. Which makes a lot of sense because there's only one person who's ever been perfectly rich toward God. You see, if you're like me, you could look at these four mistakes and realize that at some point in your life, you've done all of these things or maybe one of them, or maybe you're doing one of these things this morning, right? But that's why it's so important to be reminded that there's only one person who never made these mistakes, who never made any mistake. His name is Jesus. The gospel is this, that this Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he lived a perfect and sinless life, perfectly rich toward God, but he was unjustly put to death on the cross Because he was sinless, the stainless, spotless Lamb of God, death could not hold him down. On the third day, he rose again, appeared to his followers, and ascended to heaven. Where right now, he's seated at the right hand of God, where all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him, so that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ was perfectly rich toward God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have failed. But if you will turn to Jesus this morning, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Something amazing will happen. Your sin will be reckoned to his account on the cross and dealt with forever by the perfect sacrifice. And his righteousness will be reckoned to your account. And you can live a life truly rich toward God. Don't leave this place. If you've never made that decision, give your life to Jesus this morning. As I was thinking about these four foolish mistakes and what's at the root of them, I started to realize that it's really one thing. We struggle to trust that God will provide. That's the question we need to be able to answer. Do you trust that God will provide? That's something I struggle with, and it's, it's not just about money or possessions. It could be about all types of things. It could be about the energy to meet each day, how to handle a, a, a situation. We just tend to struggle 
to trust God to provide. And then when he does, we forget so quickly. Going back to uh, how this was my, my first sermon, uh, I remember when I got that assignment, I was really struggling to trust that God would provide. That God would provide the words for me to speak. And uh, I actually started to outline that sermon, and I'd never done that before, so I was, I was pretty nervous and anxious, and I was you know, crying out to God, God, why would you have me speak to all these people if you're not going to tell me what to say? And it wasn't going well. And about 10 days before the sermon, uh, there was a meeting set up to meet with the pastors to present my sermon outline. And those, it, was, it was coming up quick, and I didn't have much. Uh, but God was at work behind the scenes. So my mom, she works in ministry at a place called Maranatha Bible and Missionary Conference. And uh, she meets with pastors all the time there who are there for sabbaticals and are there teaching. And, and there was this guy there that week named Erwin Lutzer. He's actually there this week right now uh, in Michigan. And Erwin Lutzer had been the pastor of Moody Bible Church for over 30 years. He'd written several books. Uh, he had preached a lot more sermons than me. And my mom, of course, told him that I was preaching my first sermon. And so he said, hey, I, I want to get breakfast with that young guy. You know? So my mom texts me and says, hey, Erwin Lutzer wants to have breakfast with you. And it was like one or two days before my sermon meeting. And I sat down with him, and I did a lot more listening than talking. And he helped me outline this sermon, and he taught me how to outline sermons in general. And he gave me great pastoral advice and it was great. And then I felt really, really prepared for my meeting. But do you ever have those moments where God like hits you on the head with a two-by-four and says, hey, listen up, <laughs> right? That's what he did to me. As Erwin Lutzer was walking out, I looked at him, and it was like God impressed on my heart, Billy, that's not just Erwin Lutzer. That was me. Oh, you have little faith. Why don't you trust me that I will provide? I always provide. You know, in providing for us, God is seldom early, but he's never late. He's always right on time. But what God wants us to learn to do is to trust him until he shows up. And do you know what you call that waiting period when you're, you're praying and struggling and trying to get through something and you're waiting for the answer to arrive? You call that one word, faith. So God wants us to have faith and to trust that even though he's not always early, he's always on time. I'm going to be over in the prayer room if any of you needs prayer this morning.